119, verses 145 through 160. It's been some time since I've been with you, and uh, I do believe the last few times I was with you, I preached from some of the earlier texts in Psalm 119. And this week and next week, we will be looking at uh, the final stanzas of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is divided into 22 stanzas, and we will consider the third and fourth from last, the coffin race stanzas this morning. So hear now the word of God, Psalm 119, verses 145 through 160. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. This ends our reading from Psalm 119. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing upon his word this morning. O Lord, we do thank you for your word, for your testimonies, your statutes, these testimonies of your truth. We thank you for Psalm 119, which says so much about your word and which rejoices in it and which gives you thanks for all the light, all the illumination that it brings us. Father, we are a needy people. We need your instruction. And so we pray that by the blessing of your Holy Spirit, that you would apply your word to your people this morning. Please give us hearts to respond to your word with faith and repentance. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we know that prayer has always been central to the life of the people of God through all of history. Already in Genesis 4, we are told that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. We who are New Covenant Christians who live in these last days after Christ's work, we enjoy special blessings in prayer. 
just to think about a few of them. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus said, from now on you will pray in my name. That is a blessing that we have. We also pray knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ is glorified in heaven, is sitting at God's right hand in our own flesh and blood, and he is praying for us even as we pray on earth. That is a great privilege that we have as we pray. And we also know that in these days after Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us in greatest measure. And so we now pray with the power, with the help of that Spirit, another great privilege that we have. And yet, even as we recognize the privileges that we have as the new covenant people, we know that we receive great instruction in prayer from the Old Testament. And in particularly the Psalms, in particular the Psalms give us so much insight and provide so much of a model for us in our prayer. And that is certainly true in Psalm 119. Now we know Psalm 119, those of us who are familiar with Psalm 119 will know it best of all for what it says about God's word. In almost every verse, the psalmist uses a term for God's word. And yet there's so much more going in, on in Psalm 119 as well. And one of the things that the psalmist focuses on in our stanzas before us this morning is on the subject of prayer. Now, as this psalmist prays, he prays as one who has almost certainly been driven from the promised land, as one who is not living in peace and security in the land of Canaan, but has been driven away and is living in a foreign country, away from the presence of God, away from the temple. And yet he is crying out to God in the midst of his persecution, in the midst of his suffering. And as he prays under those difficult circumstances, he does provide so much instruction for us as we seek to be a people of prayer who cry out to God faithfully and are blessed as we do so. So let's look first at the first of these two stanzas that are before us, the Kof stanza, verses 145 through 152. Now, in these opening verses of our text, we don't really see the psalmist praying so much as talking about his practice of prayer. We learn about how the psalmist prays in these opening verses. And one of the things that we learn about prayer from these opening verses, we learn from the very verbs that he uses to describe his prayer. You notice he doesn't use simply the word pray. I pray. What does he say? Verse 145, with my whole heart I cry. Verse 146, I call to you. And then again in verse 147, I rise before dawn and I cry for help. And one of the things we see then right from the outset of our text is that prayer is not the simple 
presentation of information to God. We don't just send God a memo. We're not sending God an email with a list of requests for this day. What we are doing when we pray is crying out to him. Crying out to him from the depths of our hearts, from the bottom of our souls. We cry out to God. All of us, of course, we have a variety of personalities. And some of us, I am sure, are very free about sharing private things with other people. Maybe so much so that you make other people uncomfortable. And then there are others of us who are very private people. We don't like to talk about the things that are going on, what we're feeling and thinking deep inside. And probably life is more interesting because we have a variety of personalities. But you know what? When it comes to prayer, there is no point of being private before the Lord. The Lord knows everything that is in your heart and mind anyway. And the Lord takes pleasure in his people when they don't hide what is on their minds, but when they empty their hearts and souls before him. This is what the psalmist is doing here. He lays bare his soul before God. And that is what we ought to do too in our prayers. But notice something else that the psalmist shows us about prayer in these opening verses. He shows us that prayer is something that is holistic. And I mean a couple things by that. Notice, again, in the opening verse, verse 145, he says, With my whole heart I cry. This phrase, a whole heart, is one that the psalmist likes. He's used this several times already uh, earlier in this psalm. Ordinarily, the psalmist uses this phrase to express his devotion to God. He doesn't serve God with half a heart, with half his attention, with half his effort. That is not how the Lord wishes us to serve him. And prayer is something that is to flow out of that holistic devotion that we give to God. We are to serve God with everything that is in us, with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And our prayers are to flow out of that, not as something that we do with partial attention, with partial interest, but as something that derives from the depths of our devotion to our God. And prayer is holistic in another sense in these opening verses. It is holistic in terms of time. Did you notice what the psalmist says about how often he prays? In verse 147, he says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. And then verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night. Early in the morning, the psalmist is praying. Late at night, the psalmist, he's praying. We might think, for example, of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 17. Pray continually. The psalmist models that here for us. Now, of course, we don't always literally pray. There are many other things in life that demand our attention 
And yet, the psalmist helps us to understand that prayer is not something that should... It's not something that we do occasionally as Christians, but it is something that characterizes us, something that marks us out. We are a praying people. If you were asked to describe somebody you know, if you were asked to describe someone you know in one sentence, what would you appeal to? Would you appeal to something that this person does once in a while? Or would you appeal to something that you see this person do again and again and again? Of course, it'd be the latter. And you see, when people describe us as Christians, one of the things that ought to come first to mind is that we are a praying people. It is something that characterizes us. Just as fish swim, birds fly, scorpions sting, and Christians pray. This is who we are. And the psalmist shows that as he describes this continual prayer that he offers up to the Lord. Well, the psalmist sets a pretty high bar for prayer here, doesn't he, in these opening four verses, the first half of this cough stanza. And we read these verses and we may think there's just no way I can live up to this psalmist's uh, the psalmist standards for prayer. And it's as if the psalmist knows that. And in the very next verse, verse 149, the psalmist says something that is really quite encouraging to us as we pray and as we struggle in prayer, as we recognize that it is not easy to pray continually, to pray with our whole heart. Notice what the psalmist says then in verse 149. Hear my voice, According to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. Why is it that the Lord hears you when you call to him? Is it because your prayers are so eloquent? Because they are so faithful? Because they spring from the righteousness of your heart? And the answer is, no, that's not why the Lord hears you when you pray. The psalmist says, Lord, hear me because of your steadfast love. It is God's grace to us that is ultimately the reason why he hears us. We might think, for example, of what the author of Hebrews said so beautifully in Hebrews 10. He says that, God has opened up a new and living way for us into the heavenly sanctuary through the body of Jesus that has been broken and offered for us. Why can we approach God's throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace in our time of need? It is because Christ has offered himself for you. Christ has purchased your place before his throne of grace. But notice what the psalmist adds in the second part of verse 149. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. It's, it sort of sounds right to hear the psalmist say that God should hear us because of his steadfast love. But it might sound a little odd, a little surprising for him to say, Lord, hear me because of your justice. We may be tempted to think, well... If God was really just, he would drive us out of his presence, wouldn't he? Because we're sinful people. 
But the fact is, brothers and sisters, if Jesus has borne your sins, if Christ has offered His perfect life on your behalf, if you stand righteous before Him, then it would be unjust for God to drive you away when you call out to Him for help. We don't just appeal to His steadfast love. We can even appeal to His justice and know that because He will not ever condemn you because of what Christ has done, that He will hear you when you call to Him for help. Well, having put these wonderful things before us, the psalmist in verses 150 and 51, he does raise a darker subject and yet gives us wonderful hope in a very, a very poetic way. Our psalmist is a skilled poet, and we see it here in these verses. So in verse 150, the psalmist says, They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. And here's where we need to step back for a moment and to understand the psalmist's context. Now, you can't read very far into Psalm 119. If you try to read through the whole psalm, and I know it, it, it takes some effort to do that because it's so long, but it's a good thing to do once in a while. You read through Psalm 119, and you can't, you can't read very far, too many verses, without finding the psalmist talk about his enemies. He talks about those who are persecuting him. We're going to see this again in the next stanza. But here in verse 150, he brings them to our attention yet again. And as I made brief mention of at the beginning of the sermon, it should not surprise us at all that the psalmist is being hard-pressed by wicked people who hate him because our psalmist, he is away from the promised land. He's in enemy territory, you might say. How do we know that? Well, the psalmist... Uh, a couple of times early in the psalm, tells us that he is a sojourner. He is a sojourner on earth. And what is a sojourner? A sojourner is someone who is unsettled, someone who is away from home. God's people, Israel, were not supposed to be sojourners. God had brought them into the promised land. He had given to these tribes and clans and families he had given them plots of land that were to be their inheritance from generation to generation. And yet God had also said to Israel when he brought them into the promised land and given them the law of Moses, that if you are disobedient to me, if you rebel, I'm going to send judgments upon you. And the worst judgment that God threatened in his law was that he would drive them out of the promised land again once again to make them sojourners, as in the days of Abraham, and that they would be ruled over by pagan Gentiles. And apparently our psalmist is suffering under that judgment of God. For his own sins, he's already told us he's, he was a great sinner, for his sins and the sins of his people. And so our psalmist is in a foreign land. And you think about what that means for him. It means he's away from the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem was to be the place on earth at that time where God had promised to dwell with his people, 
That was the house of prayer. And here is the psalmist driven from that land. Who knows how many years or decades it has been since he has worshipped the Lord at that house of prayer with God's people in Jerusalem. He is a suffering man. And these evildoers are persecuting him. And they are far from God's law. And so put yourself in the psalmist's shoes. He feels that God is distant. In some sense, God is distant from him. And yet he is crying out to God. And he says, but you are near, O Lord. Isn't that wonderful? These persecutors are far from God's law and they're drawing near to him. And yet as the psalmist prays, he knows that in another very important sense, God is actually near to him. God has not abandoned his people, even under this time of judgment. And so the psalmist draws confidence from this. And I've taken a little time to emphasize this point. Because brothers and sisters, the New Testament tells us that we are sojourners in this world. In fact, at the beginning of the service, we heard, we heard a text from 1 Peter 2 that calls us this. We are sojourners, not because we are away from an earthly promised land, but for the simple reason that we are not in heavenly glory yet. As long as we Christians are in this world, we are sojourners in a fundamental spiritual sense. And that means we are a suffering people. That means we are a people surrounded by wicked people who hate our God and hate our faith. In a sense, in a sense, God is far away. Our Lord Jesus is exalted in heavenly glory, and we're here on earth. And yet, in another sense, brothers and sisters, God is not far. He is near to us. And he is especially near to us when we are doing what we're doing now. When we are gathered as his people, and when we are praying to him, we know that he is with us. And he will bless us and he will preserve us in the midst of our troubles. And so the psalmist comes to the end of this cough stanza. And I want to just point out two brief things from the end of this stanza now. The psalmist tells us just two, in a way, two basic statements, but very powerful things. At the end of verse 151, he says, All your commandments are true. God's word is true. I mean, we know that, don't we? It's a basic thing that we confess, and yet, what a wonderful thing that is. We are surrounded in a world of lies. People lie to us. People try to deceive us. We don't even know often what is true, what is false. And yet one thing that we can always rely on is the word of God. God's word is true. And the second thing the psalmist tells us here in verse 152, he says, Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. God's word is not only true, but it is true for all time. God's word is not something that will be true today and then tomorrow you need to go find some other source of truth. No, God's word is always true for us, his people. 
We can always count on it. It will always illumine our hearts and our minds. And with that, we move to the Resh stanza. Verses 153 through 160. Now, in a way here, we can see that the psalmist, he is continuing the, the thoughts that he's been developing in the previous stanza. He is still thinking about prayer, although in the opening of the stanza, he's not so much telling us about how he prays, which is what we saw at the beginning of the last stanza. Here he's, well, he's simply praying. Here we're seeing him at prayer lifting up these requests before the Lord. And as we see, especially from these opening three verses, verses 153 through 155, the psalmist is in deep need. Here we see again, as I was mentioning a few moments ago, the fact that the psalmist is suffering deeply in a variety of ways. In verse 153, he asks God to look on his affliction and asks for deliverance. At the opening of verse 154, he says, plead my cause and redeem me. Now this, this term that he uses here, plead my cause, this is a legal term. This is the term that you would hear in the courtroom. It's as if, and maybe it's literally true, possibly metaphorical, it's as the psalmist has been brought into court his enemies have hauled him in before a judge, making false accusations against him. And he's asking God to be his great attorney. Plead my cause, O Lord. In verse 154, he also says, Give me life according to your promise. Several times in this stanza, the psalmist asks for his life. I mean, the psalmist is under such trial that he fears death itself. And he adds to this sense that we have, this ominous sense of the trouble he's facing by saying in verse 155, salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Do you remember how in the previous stanza he talked about how these evil people draw near to him even as they were far from God's law? Here he says, Salvation is far from these wicked, from these wicked people, and yet they continue to afflict him. So we read these opening three verses of the stanza, and it's very sobering. And we know it can be difficult to pray when there are weighty things on our minds, when there are great troubles on our hearts. It can be difficult to focus in our prayers. And yet how important it is to pray under such circumstances. And the psalmist shows us that affliction is not a time when we forsake prayer. It is a time that we especially cry out to, Lord, to the Lord looking for his help. And yet the psalmist, he doesn't leave us with this ominous sense, with this weightiness bearing down upon us. In the center verses of this stanza, Verses 156 and 157, the two verses at the center of this stanza. The psalmist, again, shows us his poetical skills by, by playing with words in order to make a very powerful spiritual point. 
So consider verse 156. Now, the way that the ESV translation has it, uh, great is your mercy, O Lord. Now, that's a great theological statement. We would all say amen to that. Great is God's mercy. And yet that's not, it's not as literal a translation as we might have from this word, from the original Hebrew. To translate more literally from the Hebrew, it would read something like this. Many are your mercies, O Lord. Your mercies are many. Now, why do I mention that? Well, to say great is your mercy makes it seem as though God's mercy is one really giant big thing. And there's nothing wrong with that idea. In a sense, that's true. But the psalmist's point is a little bit different here. His point is not that God's mercy is so big, but that God's mercies are so numerous. And that's a really, that's, that's a comforting thing to have set before us as well. The psalmist's point is similar to that of Lamentations 3. You might remember, although Lamentations is generally a very dark book, in the center of that book, in Lamentations 3, there are some very, very encouraging statements. And in Lamentations 3, the prophet there says, Your mercies never fail. They are new every morning. That is the psalmist's point here. Every morning there are mercies from God to meet us in our time of need. And the reason why in context that's helpful to note is because of this next verse, verse 157. Here is this word play that I was mentioning. In verse 157 we read, Many are my persecutors and my adversaries. You see what the psalmist is doing here? Life is full of trouble. Life is full of enemies. Life is full of afflictions. Life is full of fears. Life is full of anxieties. But brothers and sisters, for all of those troubles that meet us day by day, there is mercy from God to meet them. As many as are your troubles in this world, there are many more mercies of God to meet you, to comfort you, to build you up in His love and grace. That should be a great comfort to us in our need. Comfort to us as we pray. And there's one final thing to note from this Rache stanza. And we see this in the next verses, verses 158 and 159, Verses 158 and 159 begin with the same Hebrew verb. Now, in the ESV, it's translated with different words. Verse 158, I look at the faithless with disgust. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. But it's the same verb in the Hebrew. Now, I mention that uh, because the psalmist is, again, kind of playing with words. Uh, this is the Resh stanza we're looking at. So Resh is a word, or I'm sorry, is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet that sounds a bit like our letter R. And what this means is that each of the eight verses of this stanza begins with this Hebrew letter. 
One of the common Hebrew words that begins with this letter resh is a word for see or to look. And so three of the eight verses, the psalmist begins with this verb. Not only these verses 158 and 159, but also the very first verse of this stanza. Look on my affliction. And so we see this and we notice that the idea of seeing is an important theme in this, in this stanza. Now, in the first and last times that the psalmist uses these verbs, so verses 153 and 159, the psalmist is asking God to see him. Look on my affliction and deliver me. That's 153. Consider how I love your precepts. That's verse 159. One of the things that we do as we pray is that we ask the Lord to see us. Now you think about that for a moment. Isn't that a remarkable thing? You want God to see you when you're a Christian. If you weren't a believer, if you were still lying under the wrath of God, if you were God's enemy, would you want God to see you? No way. You would be like those people in Revelation that call the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the living God. But what a blessing we have because we have been reconciled with God. We want him to see us because we know that as he looks upon us, he looks upon us with these mercies. We know that he looks upon us to help us, to sanctify us, to bring us safely through to glory. But also note that the second of these three times that the psalmist uses this verb to see or to look, in verse 158, he describes his own seeing. God sees us, but the way God sees us should also shape the way we see. In a sense, we see as those who are seen by God and think and seek to reflect how he sees us. But you'll notice in verse 158, the psalmist says, I look at the faithless with disgust. It's kind of a striking statement, isn't it? It may be that we who are parents teach our children not to look at other people with disgust. Right? We tell our children to look at other people with charity, with humility, with kindness. And it may seem that the psalmist is being judgmental, that he's being uncharitable to look at other people with disgust. What is he doing? Well, there's a pretty easy explanation for what the psalmist is doing. But we have to recognize, we have to recognize the kind of people we are as sinners. One of our temptations, whether, whether you're a young person here or whether you're an adult, one of our great temptations of sinners is to look at unbelievers, to look at wicked people, and to be secretly jealous of them. To look at them and think, you know what, they can have a lot of fun that we can't have. They can kind of get ahead at work because of the little lies that they can tell that we won't tell. Sometimes in this life it can seem to be it can seem to be a hindrance to be a Christian. 
And we can look at wicked people and even secretly think, I kind of wish I was them. Brothers and sisters, we should not envy the wicked. We should not be jealous of the wicked. This is what the psalmist is teaching us. We should look at the wicked with disgust, not because we hate them, not because we're being judgmental of them, but because we should find the ways of wickedness to be thoroughly unattractive. Let us pray that we will be a people who grow in holiness and that we will not find the ways of wickedness uh, to be something we desire. And that brings us to the end of our text, verse 160. And as I read it, let me read it for you again. And think about how similar it is to the way the previous stanza ended. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The same two things that the psalmist said at the end of the last stanza. God's word, it is true, and God's word endures forever. Let this be our confidence before the Lord. As you pray, as you seek to be a faithful, praying people to the Lord, remember that we pray according to his word, and that word will never, ever fail us. Let us pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this word you have set before us. We thank you for the gift of prayer that you have won for us through that finished work of Christ on our behalf. Father, we pray that you would make us a praying people, a people who love to enter your presence, to, to open our hearts before you, to cry out to you, and to know, O oh Lord, that as we pray to you, you truly are near to us, and your mercies are very, very many. O oh Lord, thank you for this great gift. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we respond to God's word and prepare to approach the Lord's table, let us sing together number 202 in the Trinity Psalter hymnal. Number 202, let's rise and sing verses 1, 2, and 5.